So today we're going to be talking about one of the greatest longings of the human heart. And one of the greatest longings of the human heart is the longing for freedom. And you may or may not know it, but freedom is a major, if not one of the major, if not the major themes of the Bible. Not freedom to do whatever you want to do, but freedom from the ultimate tyrant, freedom from the ultimate slave master, freedom from sin. And not only freedom from sin, but freedom to live for the glory of God. Freedom to live for His honor. Freedom, how about this? To live the way you were made to live apart from sin. And so what we're going to do, that, that, therefore what that means is we're going to be in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is really the book of freedom. It's a book about deliverance, even from the name. If you're exiting from a bad situation, you're gaining freedom. I need to get out of this mess. I need to get out of, uh, from this oppression. I need to get away from this tyrant. Well, that's exiting. It's the book of Exodus. It's the book about freedom. It's the book about deliverance. And so we're going to be in that second book of the Bible today, looking at the book of freedom, looking at the book of deliverance, looking at the book of Exodus. So a number of weeks ago, I said we're going to do a brief series in the book of Exodus, and I lied because I said it was going to be the next week, and then it wasn't, and some of you are so good and charitable and nice, reminding me, when are we going to do Exodus? So here we are. Well, I intended to do probably four weeks uh, looking at the Exodus theme. It's a motif. It's something that repeats itself in Scripture, and it comes up again and again. And so here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to spend a week on the historic Exodus, the book of Exodus. Then I wanted to look at the Exodus after the Exodus. And if you don't know what that means, we'll get to it. Then I wanted to look at the future Exodus, and we'll get to that as well. And then once I had you all tracking, I wanted to look at the Exodus before the Exodus, because there's actually an Exodus before the historic Exodus. I don't know when we're going to get to all of those things, um, because I couldn't figure out how to do the book of Exodus in one week. And so if you see like some bruising on my forehead, I've been beating my head against the wall trying to figure out how do you do Exodus in a week? And uh, I think I would be cheating you and uh, not doing justice to things. So we're going to do the whole book. So I hope you're not going to leave in protest. I hope you're excited about that. I, I don't see any way around it. And if I'm honest, if I'm confessing my sins, which I seem to be doing right about now, I've not heard very many good sermons on the book of Exodus that have kept my attention. And I've thought to myself, if I'm really honest, I never plan to preach through the book of Exodus on a Sunday morning because I'm not sure if anybody does a very good job of it and who in the world do I think I am to try to do a good job of it. So... If I resign from the pastor next week, <laughs> you'll know that it, that it claimed me. But I don't think so. It's an interesting book. It's not that hard to interpret, but it's 40 chapters. And so we're going to work our way through it. We're going to work our way through it quickly. Um, but it's, it's the great drama that you need to know if you really want to understand the rest of the Bible. Even the psalm we read today assumed you knew the book of Exodus. So much of the Bible assumes you know the book of Exodus. I know some of you do, 
but lots of you don't. And so let's dig in so we can be better Bible students and we can understand freedom and deliverance better by looking at the book of Exodus. Now, some of you don't look convinced yet. And so I am going to offer you by way of introduction, some motivations, motivations for studying the book of Exodus. I think I've already motivated some of you. Um, but the first one on my list, I have a list of five here. We're going to do rather quickly. Uh, this is to get you ready. And I'm going to repeat these, not all of them, but uh, now and then as we go, because you're going to stay motivated. The first good motivation for studying the book of Exodus is because it is for Christians. It actually is for Christians. I know it's for Christians because the apostle Paul says it's for Christians. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, think Exodus, and all passed through the sea, think Exodus, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's Exodus talk. And then he goes on to say this, listen carefully. In verse 6 of chapter 10, 1 Corinthians, it says, Now these things took place as examples for us. And he's writing to Christians. That we might not desire evil as they did. So this is for us. He goes on to say, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. He's saying this is for us. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then he says this. Now these things happen to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so Exodus is for us in that sense. It's for us in other senses as well, because as they are, the, the people of Israel are oppressed in Egypt, longing, promised a promised land, longing to go to Jerusalem, well, when we fast forward into the Christian era that we're a part of, the Bible talks about the new Jerusalem. The Bible talks about, like in Galatians, the Jerusalem from above. We too, even though we're not exiled in Egypt, we are exiled on this, in this fallen world. And we're to long for our exodus, to long for our deliverance. And so we'll be able to identify with them. Hebrews 12, 22, Galatians 4, 26. Some of you are getting closer to the edge of your seat. Some of you are a little bit motivated. Uh, here's another motivator for studying the book of Exodus. And that would be to increase in our knowledge of God. To increase in our knowledge of God because that's vital for spiritual growth. That's why the Apostle Paul prays in Colossians 1 that the believers would be increasing in their knowledge of God. It matters how we think about God. We're going to hear today in Exodus that God says, I am who I am. And we're going to learn about what that means. And there are implications. If God is the great I am and he makes a promise to his people, we know that he will keep his promise. Theology is practical because if God is just like all of the other gods of human creation, then we can't trust him to deliver us. But if we know who he is, like we're going to learn in the book of Exodus, that he's the sovereign, he's the all-knowing, he's the all-powerful, he's the one and only true living God, and he makes promises to deliver, what's going to happen? 
he's going to be able to deliver. So we want to be increasing in our knowledge of God, the God who saves, the God who delivers. And then another motivation would be to understand the New Testament better, to understand the New Testament better. When we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb, that means nothing apart from the book of Exodus. Because it's in the book of Exodus that we learn about the Passover. So we're going to understand the New Testament better. In fact, we're going to understand the New Testament period when we understand things like Passover. When John the Baptist in the New Testament sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the what? The Lamb of God. Oh, that's rooted and grounded in Exodus, not to mention Leviticus. I should say it's to understand the Old Testament better as well, just today in Psalm 81. Well, fourth on my list of motivators, even though I snuck one in there, would be to appreciate the types, to appreciate the shadows. We're going to hear today, well, Lord willing, we'll see how far we get at this point. If we get to Exodus 4, we're going to hear that Israel is my firstborn son. Does that sound wrong? I think in a certain sense it should sound wrong. Who's God's firstborn son? Well, we all know as Christians, God's ultimate firstborn son is Jesus. It's the son. That's Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6. The firstborn, even the angels worship, worship him. He's the firstborn, the ultimate firstborn. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the ultimate firstborn. But guess what? Israel, according to Exodus chapter 4, is God's firstborn son. See, they are the lesser firstborn son. They're the type or the shadow anticipating the ultimate. And we're going to be able to learn things like that. It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be fascinating. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea chapter 11, it's clearly talking about Israel. Israel, God's son, is called out of Egypt. But then we get to the gospel accounts. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Oh, what we see in Exodus, even though it's not a prophecy, it is a type, it is a shadow, anticipates, according to Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, fulfillment. Yeah, and the fulfillment is going to be by the son. It's going to be fascinating. We're going to Learn about the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. And then we get to the New Testament and we see that Jesus is the ultimate dwelling of God. He came and dwelt among us. John chapter 1, he came and tabernacled among us. So that lesser, though very important tabernacle we're going to learn about in the book of Exodus is anticipating the ultimate dwelling of God, the ultimate tabernacle. It's Jesus. And it leads us to him. We're going to see that Jesus is the true and greater Moses, and we're going to even see that today. Moses, he will escape the threat of death as a baby uh, by a villainous ruler. Sound familiar? Yes. Both will do signs and wonders and miracles. Sound familiar? Yes. Both will lead the people in deliverance. Moses, we're going to see, is a savior. Moses is a deliverer. Moses is one who saves his people. Not in the ultimate sense. So we're going to anticipate there's a greater Moses. There's an ultimate Savior. There's an ultimate Moses. There's an ultimate deliverance. 
Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. Moses says, Like me from among you, from your brothers. Get this. It is to him you shall listen. There's a greater Savior coming. Even Moses knew that. Well, that's just a sampling. I've got one more motivator here because you all look really motivated about now. And that will be to see Christ in the Old Testament. It will be to see Christ in the Old Testament. Not only in the types and shadows, but the pre-incarnate Christ. John chapter 6, verse 41. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Wow. Jesus says, I, I am the bread. He's talking about Exodus. And he says, it's him. That's fascinating. 1 Corinthians 10, 4 says this. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. He's talking about Exodus. How about this? And the rock was Christ. Wow. That's a, that's a pretty, pretty big statement about the pre-incarnate son. Okay, ready? Ready to go? There are more motivations, and I'm going to keep reminding you of some of these things as we go. And so, hopefully we're ready to jump in now. Okay, Chapters 1 to 15. Anybody have lunch plans? (laughs) So, see, this is why it claims so many preachers. So, chapters 1 to 15 is all about the Exodus, okay? And then we're going to move beyond that and see other things. But it's concentrated 1 to 15, and so we're just going to chip away at it over the next however long it's going to take us to get through this first major section, first 15 chapters. Uh, I thought we would do five today. I don't think so. I said to Molly, maybe we'll do four. And now that I've been talking for this long, I don't know. Maybe we'll do one. Um, But (laughs) please be looking for the themes, the themes of enslavement, tyranny, oppression, deliverance, salvation. We should be seeing these things. Okay, here we go. Exodus 1, 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So he's connecting to Genesis and the end of Genesis. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, I hope you're seeing these things, and and the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, 
when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So oppression, tyranny, enslavement, harsh conditions. The human heart says, I want to be free. I don't want to be oppressed. I don't want to be enslaved. I want freedom, synonym, I want to be saved, is what they want, as we will see. Guys doing okay so far? All right. Verse chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with the bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter and said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Verse 17 says, the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and, please notice, I wasn't making it up, saved them and watered their flock. Moses is a savior. 
when they came home to their father rule, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? 19 says, they said, an Egyptian delivered. Synonym, saved, right? That's why I use those synonyms so often. So, so maybe we're shocked into catching the idea. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left them, the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And I'm going to put my finger there just for a moment before we move on. In the New Testament, we hear Christians described with such terms like sojourners, strangers and aliens. First Peter uses it surely regarding Babylonian captivity and things like this, but this is the captivity before that. So the sojourning kind of motif is significant because we're called sojourners because we're here in this broken world, living in our Babylon, living in our Egypt, in this case, if you will, longing for ultimate deliverance into the ultimate promised land. So we can identify, in other words. 23 says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because their slavery and cried out for help, for deliverance, for salvation, for exodus, their cry for rescue. There it is again, another kind of synonym from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. He remembered his oath, his solemn vow that he swore to deliver, right? And to save. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and on it goes. Abrahamic promise, it's still intact, it's still in effect, and God is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and he's going to take care of his people. Let's go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. We'll see that quite a bit. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. This is sacred space. Six says, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction, right? The oppression, the enslavement, the injustice of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver, to save them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you. So it's kind of, it's, it's important. So God is going to do this. He just said, I'm going to do this. And yet he's going to use a representative. He's going to send Moses to be the one who delivers them. It's God doing it. God doing it through Moses. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt, that you would save my people if you will, right? But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent to you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And right now, we are preparing ourselves to hear what may be the five most important words in the entire Old Testament. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, and he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am is my name. So different from all of the kind of gods that you're used to. The fire God and the water God and any other God that you might come up with, all of these different kinds of gods. I'm not like any of those gods. I, the significant word, I'm transcendent. I'm different. I'm above them all. I'm not like any of the other ones. I'm the self-existent, all-knowing God who's always been God and always will be God, the one true and living God. It's a bit of a mystery. I am One theologian puts it this way. These are helpful insights. First, it means God is set apart. Unlike the Egyptian gods, gods who were identified with certain objects of objects or places, the sun, the moon, the river, etc. God is above his creation. He is not just another God in a long list of gods, but is unique, distinct from the created order. How about this? Rather, he is the one who exists independently of all things and is the only being for whom existence is part of his essence. It's one of those things where you say, I don't get it. He's the mysterious God. He's the different God. He's the incomprehensible God. He's the God who says, I'll tell you what my name is. I am. Well, that's different. The same theologian goes on to say, in short, everything else is contingent on him. He is the one eternal, all-powerful creator God. I am implies absolute existence without limitation, either in time or contingency. He is not contingent upon anything and everything is contingent upon him. Absolute independence, self-sufficient creator in whom alone is life in and of himself. Whole books are written about this. 
And you do remember when Jesus talks to the religious leaders in John chapter 8. He says, before Abraham was, what? I am. I am that God. Now, it, it gets, well, I don't want to say it gets better. I don't want to be blasphemous. I don't think it gets any better. He's the totally different God, right? The self-sufficient God, all of the things we just talked about. But what's fascinating in the flow of the context here is, but he's also that God who is for his people. And he will deliver his people. That's rather profound. He's with his chosen. His presence is with them, guaranteeing their deliverance. This is why I mentioned earlier, and I'll mention it till the day I die or lose my mind, that theology matters. Who God is, and it's in context to whether or not he will keep his word. Whether or not he will actually be able to make good on his promises. So important. Just tell me more about who God is. Tell me more about his wisdom. Tell me more about his power. Tell me more about how he is not part of the created order that's broken and failing. Tell me more about him and then you can remind me of his promises to me and I'll know that they're yes and amen. It's wonderful to see. Wonderful to see. Well, we should keep going in chapter 3 and verse 16. At this rate, we're going to finish all 40 chapters, I think. You all are doing great. No, we won't do that today. 3.16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt and I promise I, that God does this. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, the glorious, great, rich land. In other words, 18 says, and they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord, our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. He can say that because of the God that he is. How about verse 21? And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when, not if, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians. Who is excited about freedom and deliverance? People who are oppressed. People who are enslaved. People who are suffering. How long, O oh Lord? This is the most exciting thing imaginable 
if it were only true, oh, based upon who's making the promises, it's actually going to happen. Not empty promises. Then chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me, or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. How about verse 5? That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So there are going to be signs and wonders to authenticate the message. Okay? And we see this on other occasions, in particular with the ultimate deliverer, with the ultimate Moses. And there's something similar going on here. So now, forever and ever and ever, I hope, when you read the New Testament and you read the gospel accounts and you see Jesus doing the things that he's doing, you'd say, oh, this is not normal. This is not normal throughout all of history, but it has been done before by a lesser deliverer, by a lesser representative, a lesser Moses, but it's not like out of the blue. The things are done to authenticate the extraordinary message of the one true and living God. Let's keep going. Verse six, again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Quite a statement about sovereignty. Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, My Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. 17 says, and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs, the authenticating signs. Then 18 says, Moses went back to Jethro. His father-in-law said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
And I, right, there it is. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Then a little twist. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. What's that about? It's probably about Moses' disobedience and not doing what he was supposed to do as a Jewish man and have his son circumcised. Moses was not a perfect man. Moses is a sinner. And here his wife intervenes and his life is spared. Verse 26 says, So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent to him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the Lord and the, excuse me, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. We'll stop there in Exodus for today. How should we leave all of this? Well, in anticipation, let me say two things. I so badly want us to understand God, who He is, how He has delivered His people. I want you to understand the book of Exodus because it's God's Word. But I so badly want you as your pastor to understand this so you can understand the other things. And the Bible will make more sense. And I think I'm shortchanging you if we don't do the due diligence and do some of the roll your sleeves up and do some of the hard work and understand the narrative. And so that's what we're doing. But we're doing it ultimately so that we might understand the ultimate Moses who performed the ultimate, if you will, exodus. If you will, just listen to these words. You can look it up if you'd like, but I don't want to take any more time. But listen to these words that occur at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. Listen carefully, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus is the Greek word. It's translated in the ESV, departure. It's the word exodus. And spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now we'll come back to that, but just to kind of give you the, the preview of things, he accomplished his exodus, right? 
his ultimate work, his ultimate deliverance, and he's doing it on behalf of his people as the ultimate savior representative, as the ultimate Moses, accomplishing freedom, deliverance for us. I love that. And I love it more when I do some of the hard work in understanding the historic narrative of the historic exodus and seeing what a great big deal it was and the plans and purposes of God to provide the canvas, if you will, the background, if you will, to know about our great, majestic, amazing, unrivaled Lord Jesus Christ who accomplished the ultimate exodus for his people, those who trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for history. We know you're the God of history. May we appreciate what you've done in the past. May we appreciate what is sure in Christ Jesus, the resurrected, ascended one. And may it cause us to want to live lives that honor you, that show gratitude unto you. We know that salvation is not something we can accomplish. We know, and we will see even in the book of Exodus, that people who make grand claims of faithfulness, crash and burn again and again. And so we know that we need to not trust in our own faithfulness. We need to have our faith, our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate deliverer. And yet we do want to live for his honor and for his glory, knowing what he's done for us. Make it true for the men and women and boys and girls who are here today for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.